0: Each year during Lent, Pastor Kevin and I seek to find a unifying topic or theme to focus our pre-Easter celebrations, and this year we have selected the seven deadly sins. So, uh, not to be too negative, uh, let's take our our hymnals, I mean our bulletins, turn to pages 8 through 10 for the outline. These seven deadly sins were constructed during the Middle Ages, heavily influenced by Thomas Aquinas, and they were mentioned and put together as a cluster in part because they give indications of the heart. And so rather than talk again and again about the seven deadly sins, our sermon outline for this next six to eight weeks will be Windows into the Heart, because the The plan and purpose of the theologians was to let the people know that these are indications that there may be something wrong. The seven deadly sins. They are not the worst sins that a person could commit. No one would say, for example, this morning's sin of gluttony is worse than murder or perhaps even lying or adultery. But they are called to our attention as... Indicators, sensors, of what else might be going on in our lives, and this first one has to do with gluttony. And the passage you see there in uh, Joshua nine seven and Hosea two. Uh, listen now as the word is read, and you can follow along in the bulletin. Then
1: Joshua said to Achan, My son. Give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and render praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. God, hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, well, The truth, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful metal from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I to them, and took them. And behold, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent, with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent, with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent, and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the mantle, and his sons, and daughters, and his oxen, and asses, and sheep, and his tents and all that he had. they brought them up to the valley of Abraham. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire. and stoned them with stones. And I will punish her for the feast days of Baal when she burned incense to them and decked herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot says the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make her a store of And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades,
0: but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Thank you. Let's pray. We do thank you, Lord, for your word and for its eternal power. And as we turn to it this morning, we ask that you might give us greater insights into our need of you, and a greater joy in our salvation, and a livelier expectation of eternal life. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. So gluttony, the others are wrath and sloth and pride and, well, we'll get to those as we get along here. But for this morning, gluttony, which is an inordinate desire to consume more than one requires, particularly to eat and drink immoderately, but it's bigger than that as we see this morning, concupiscence uh, having to do with sexual excesses, and the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit known as self-control, gluttony. Proverbs 23.2, you see the verse there, Put a knife to your throat if you're given to gluttony, he says. Pretty straightforward. It means in the, Middle Eve, in the medieval description to eat and drink, to consume excessively, daintily, impulsively, and sumptuously. They broke it down. Those medieval theologians really enjoyed being specific. They said we shouldn't eat too much or drink too much excessively. We shouldn't daintily uh, demand only the most perfectly prepared food. We mustn't impulsively demand food right now, and we mustn't sumptuously uh, insist and demand on only the richest of food. But where does that come from? It's a craving, it's a desire that we have For more and more and more, regardless of food or drink or whatever it is, in this particular story, food and drink aren't even mentioned, there is a desire within the human heart to not be satisfied, to want to consume more and more. Now specifically related to Achan's sin, God had said when they entered the land of Israel, the promised land, there was to be one rule of conquest. And I have it there in the outline. God said to Israel that they are not coming to Canaan to satisfy a thirst for national power or to satisfy a thirst for wealth and land. They're coming to the promised land, land which goes all the way back to the days of Abraham, where he said, I will dwell with you there. I'm giving you this land to inhabit and to inherit, and I will be with you there. I'm not about getting rid of the Canaanites only. I'm not about making you a great and mighty nation. I'm about giving you a land and a place and a dwelling to be together. And so the word went out from Moses and Joshua and the others that they were not to touch the plunder of the victories that they achieved under God's power. They were not to take to themselves the wealth that they seized from their enemies as they came into the promised land. But Achan had another idea. He knew he was wrong. He had been warned. But here's the indication. Our our hearts are so turned and inclined toward evil, and we're so insistent, as revealed in the sin of gluttony, that our craving is so strong it overcomes our conscience and our reason. Even if we know it's not right, that's not enough to stop us. Even if it doesn't make sense to do it, it's not enough to stop us because we want what we want. We are craving and desiring. So strong is it that it overcomes our fear of consequences and even self-preservation. The penalty for this was death, and the penalty was visited upon Achan and his entire family. And Achan was willing to risk it all because he had to have those shekels. He had to have that robe. He had to have that wealth. We assume he was an ordinary man, a man of normal rational capabilities, not a, not a wicked man or a particularly uh, vile person given to lawlessness. But he gave in to his own desire, pushing aside the restrictions and the boundaries that God gave him. And so under application of this first point, this craving is at the bottom of almost all of our discouragements and almost all of our deepest difficulties. We have to see ourselves in Achan here this morning because we could turn to a lot of other instances, and we'll turn to a few of them in a moment, where this particular activity of overriding with desire what one knows to be right or wrong is common to us. And it is deadly. It is destructive. It tears down, it distorts, it ruins. So this craving is at the bottom, as I say, of of almost all of our discouragements and deepest difficulties. One way to put it is that what we want is certainty and security. The money and the robe would have given Aiken and his family something that they felt that he felt they needed, a certain nest egg, inheritance, a certain guarantee of the future that would bring security to them and stabilize their lives as they moved into a, an unknown land. It does seem to me that gluttony and a desire for security are closely intertwined. It's not just about self-control, although that's part of it. It's also about a desire to be safe. To have certainty and security to the amount that we can relax. It, it seems to me a very widespread thing. American branding, the, the idea of, the, of, of going to a restaurant and always getting the same food, the idea of buying a craftsman tool and always getting the same tool, the idea of American branding is built on this human desire for certainty. When I go into a Holiday Inn, I want to know that it's the same wherever I go. That's a reliable, clean room that I can rent for the night. When I go up to that restaurant or that fast food place, I want what I expect them to give me what I expect and I will get as long as I get it I'll pay for them because I have certainty and security and the unknown is pushed back. It would seem that Achan at least was seeking such things. And when we look into the scriptures more widely and into our own hearts we realize that this craving for security and certainty goes very, very deep. But let's look at how he fell and see very as we have a very nice expression here of, of uh, what it is that, that we fall prey to. Verse 21 as he's explaining what happened, he says, "When I saw the plunder, in the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold. So, I coveted them. Sin begins with, usually with the sight. Adam and Eve saw how beautiful the fruit was. David was walking in the cool of the evening, and he gazed across the rooftops, and he saw a beautiful woman, Bathsheba, who was not his wife. It's with the eyes that we begin the structure and the architecture of sin very, very often. And certainly it was true in this case. The word here in the Hebrew is, I beheld. I didn't just notice it, I gazed at it. I put it at the center of my attention. I saw that robe and I saw those shekels and I said, wow. Not just there's a robe and some shekels, but wow. I could have that. I'd like to have that. And think what that would bring to me. Regardless of the rules, regardless of the warnings of Moses and Joshua, look at that. In the same way Adam and Eve saw the fruit and beheld its beauty, and they wanted it. David saw the beauty of Bathsheba, and he wanted her. Cravings usually begin in the first step with sight. We see something, maybe quite accidentally, but then it not just is gazed and moved on, I mean, noticed and moved on, but we begin to behold and to gaze. And then verse 21 goes on and he says, I weighed them, so to speak. I, I, uh, I, I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. So he saw the plunder and then he counted it. He counted the shekels and they came up to 200. And he began to give them greater weight than even they bore. He gave them glory. He said, if I had those beautiful, that beautiful robe and that beautiful um, plunder... I would be rich. I would be somebody. I would have security and safety for me and my family. But let us remember that whatever you glory in, you serve. And it owns you. You don't own it. Whatever you value most highly tends to possess you and not the reverse. It becomes something you must have. Which is the next step. He saw it, he beheld it, he counted it, he he thought about it, and then he coveted it. That could be mine. Not only is it beautiful, not only is it valuable, but I want it. Not only is Bathsheba beautiful, but I want her. I have a wife. In fact, I have several, but I want her. And so now the craving is going more deeply. I saw it. I counted it. I weighed it. Now I coveted it. And it got ever more deeply into his heart. He began to worship it. Oh, not probably by bowing before it or singing any songs to it, burning any incense but it now had captured his heart he had to have it this of course is the tenth commandment thou shalt not covet anything that belongs to someone else and God said when they came into the promised land this land is yours but the people and possessions are mine they do not belong to you and you may not take them the process was complete as he continues his confession and he says, I took them. I coveted them and I took them. Adam and Eve grabbed the fruit and ate it. King David took Bathsheba to himself and into his chambers. So the so what began as just mere eyesight and a little inclination has now led to ruin. And the craving process is complete. I dare say these are the main steps which scripture gives us as the road to sin. Now there's an off-ramp on each, at each point, you know? You can't help what your eyes see initially, but you don't have to go to step two, which is to gaze and behold and, and cherish them. And you may even get to step two, but you don't have to let it so invade your heart. You can just leave and say, boy, that's a beautiful woman. Boy, that's a nice pile of silver and gold. Boy, that's a beautiful fruit in the garden and the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, which we were told we could not eat from. And there's an off-ramp there to say, well, that, that's beautiful, but not me. I can't do it. I'm not going there. So every, every, just because you start down the road doesn't mean that you have to go down the road, but Achan did. He went down the road. And this verse 21 shows us in slow motion, as I say in the application, that craving knows where there is, that there is, a gratif- knows there is a gratifying apparatus in the center of your being that can take over and ruin your life. So what do we do? Well, we say, Achan, you should have walked away. Adam and Eve, you shouldn't have eaten. David, you already had your wives. Turn away from the other man's wife, and certainly don't send her husband to death in battle. How do I get off this road to ruin? If I find myself descending along this path, we come now to the healing of our craving. Fortunately, the Bible doesn't just describe time after time after time the ruination of lives. We could add our own modern names if we wanted to, but it also gives us hope and help. Number one, be aware of what you're gazing at. In Hebrews 12, the writer says, Let us run with perseverance the race set before us. What he's saying is that every Christian and every believer is on a pathway that has some length to it. And in order to reach the end of the line successfully, one must be persevering. One must recognize that there's an ongoing call for steps of faithfulness along the way. Part A, part B, part C, all along the way we have to be faithful. Let us run with perseverance. After all, if we go almost all the way in our car, almost to our destination, and then we turn off the road into a wreck, we haven't accomplished our purpose. Well, we did so well all this time. We were all this time on the track. We were obeying the traffic laws, and then all of a sudden it ended badly. Let us run with perseverance the race that's before us. Let us realize that, that our calling as a Christian has some length to it, and we are called to be faithful in it. And when you find yourself tempted, nip it in the bud. Turn away from it early. Don't go where it can happen. David should have gone in the house. Adam and Eve should have walked to another part of the garden. Achan should have just walked away, left the plunder there. Others would take care of it, and it wouldn't have involved him but he had some time on his hands. He had some opportunity to ruminate and cogitate. William Temple says, your religion is what you do with your solitude. The off-ramps on this this pathway to destruction can be avoided. You can can get off the, the train. But you have to guard your your mind. Adam and Eve thought about it before they ate. And they knew it wasn't right. David thought about it before he took Bathsheba. It wasn't just a knee-jerk reaction. It wasn't just a momentary thing. He thought about it. And he allowed to come into his mind a desire and an opportunity and a plan Ended in destruction. So here are some tests. What do you think about when you don't have to think about anything? Where does your mind go? Follow it. Where does your mind go as you lie down to sleep at night and you re- reflect on the day, the positives and the negatives? Where does your mind go when you have a few minutes to yourself? Where do your hands and eyes go when you're all alone? Furthermore, what would you say to God about, about what item and person, thing, would you say to God, if you do this, if you refuse to give this to me, we're through? Sobering questions. But well, we've all asked them. What will I do now? I have a few moments to myself. How can I spend it? In prayer? And about what would you say if you do this, if you refuse to give this to me, we're through to God? So be aware of what you're gazing at. Be aware of what's become your craving. Be aware of what you simply have to have in order to be you, in order to be happy, in order to be safe, in order to be secure. What do I have to have? Is it money? Is it a person? Is it respect and admiration of others? What is it? Where does your mind go when you have a few moments? And what is it that if God grasped out of your hand that thing or person, you would say to him, we're through. You can't take that. It's mine. So be aware of what we're gazing at, and let's, let's make a transition here to be ravaged with Jesus. Hebrews twelve says, uh, "Let us run with perseverance the race set before us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith." Thomas Chalmers says, "The only way to release the soul from the powerful power of a beautiful object is to give it a more beautiful object." I mean, isn't that what happened when you got married? You dated some men, some women but a more beautiful, a more attractive person came into your life and replaced all the others, hopefully. Isn't that what happened when you got your last automobile? You were driving the car, it was perfectly fine when you bought it, perfectly fine for all those years, but one day you found a car that that you liked better, got to have that car, wanted to take that place. And so Chalmers is right. The only way to release the soul from the power of a beautiful object is to give it a more beautiful object. And we have it. Jesus is our new affection, and he has expulsive power. So we must discipline ourselves to seek him, to fix our eyes on him, to feast on him. Had Aiken simply thought of the beauty of the Lord and the power and majesty of God the robe and the gold and the silver would have been as nothing because he would not have wanted to displease or disaffect his Savior. So application now. Are you addicted to certainty and security like most of us? The only certainty you can ever have is that Jesus loves you if you belong to him. It's the only certainty you will need. We teach ourselves, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it's such a a comforting thing for parent and child to learn that wonderful truth. The only certainty we will ever have is that he loves us. We can't know the number of our days, nor how long the ones around us will live, nor how happy our circumstances might be. These things all are beyond our reach. But we do have one certainty and one security, and really only one, that if you are his, he will love you now and for all eternity. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never turn aside to the right or to the left. He will never find an object that is more beautiful to him than you. You are it with him. You are supreme in terms of his affection and interest in you. And you say, me? I don't, I don't deserve it. No, true enough, but the fact of the matter is that all of the testimony of the Bible, including the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is that, <coughs> excuse me, is that you are precious to him beyond cost. And so he gave up the robe that Achan sought to have and was stripped naked for us and bare before his accusers who had no right to undo the sandals on his feet. But he did it because he promised, because he set his heart and his affection on you, and there isn't anything in this universe that's more important to him than you. Nothing can take your place. You may grow old, you may grow feeble, you may like David and Adam and Eve, you may fail him, but still he will come after you. Still he will pursue you. Still he will give you hope. Do you want recognition? Perhaps Achan was looking for a little bit of respect from his peers. Why would Jesus die for you if you did not matter? Why would he love you if you did not have worth and dignity? If you were not important, he wouldn't. But you are. And the fact that he does love you gives you the dignity and value that we search for all our lives. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let us keep our gaze there so that we are not in some way distracted and distorted. So the healing of our craving takes place when we are aware of what we're gazing at, and when we change our gaze from that to Jesus, and when we, thirdly, we repent. Even if you take the robe and the gold, you can still repent. Even if you bring Bathsheba into your chambers, you can still repent. And we have Psalm 51, a beautiful expression of David's repentance after having done that. It's not too late. The Valley of Acre is mentioned again in the prophet Hosea. And in the second passage, which Scott Hoganson read for us this morning, he says, there I will give her back her vineyards, verse 15 of Hosea 2, and I will make the Valley of Acre a door of hope. Here's a reference buried way off in a future prophet to this horrible day in Achan's life. The Valley of Acor became a place of disrepute and disgrace because Acre, because Achan and all of his possessions and family were stoned and burned and stoned and burned again. They had disobeyed the Lord. But God says through Hosea, I can rebuild you from the ground up. If your cravings have called you to a messed up life, And if you've given in to those cravings and this sin has become deadly to you, there's still time to say I'm sorry, to come back and to to be called, as I say in the final application, as gluttons to a real feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where every appetite will be more than satisfied, where the richest of food will be offered forevermore, It's promised, it's described in the book of Revelation, it's coming. So come back now to gluttony as just a food and drink item. If that's the issue, think of the feast. and Replace your desire for the food of this world for a desire for the heavenly food that one day you will have. When you know you have an incredible dessert coming, you don't eat too much, right? Save room for dessert. The best is yet to come. And our cravings will all be satisfied in his presence. Let us pray. It's true, Lord, that our cravings ruin us. There are things that we simply have to have. And if you denied them to us, or if you took them from us, It would create a real crisis in our relationship with you. It would be potentially damaging to a great extent. But that's on us. That's because we've let things become disproportionately important. We've stretched them out of shape. We've taken good things and disordered our loves to the extent that we love them too much. Replace our love for the things of this world, we pray, with an affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. And on this Valentine's Day, as we rejoice in the loved ones that you have given to us, the spouses, the the friends, be our friend, be our spouse, be our joy and our completion be our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.